it's time for architecture, coffee, and ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode. It is officially Black History Month. I want to try and start celebrating these heritage months with one of our episodes, and I thought the best way to do that is to have a year honoring those who have contributed to design, but remain the unsung heroes. In honor of that, we are going to start by talking about one of the best architects that you probably haven't heard of. He was the first African-American architect to be licensed west of the Mississippi, the first to join the AIA, which is the American Institute of Architects, a professional organization I've mentioned on the show several times. Today, I want to go into detail on the life of Paul Revere Williams, who was known as the architect to the stars, but he was truly so much more than that. His work spanned from coast to coast, but centered around Los Angeles where he lived. He crossed limitations and paved a path that has led the way for architects today, and his legacy continues to have an impact and break social barriers. Before diving into this episode, I do want to point out a great documentary on PBS that I watched about him called Hollywood's Architect, the Paul R. Williams story. Other than the great music, it had his grandchildren, historians, architects, and the current owners of his buildings speaking about his work. And overall, it was a wonderful showcase of his legacy. So please find it and enjoy it if it is available in your country. And with that, remember as always to always check your sources, check your facts, and most importantly, check me. I should never be your only source of information. William's story begins with his parents, Chester and Lilla Williams. They had originally started their family in Memphis, Tennessee, and had already had their first son, his brother, when they decided to relocate to Los Angeles, California. Both of them had contracted tuberculosis prior to 1893. As some of you know, like much of the South, the Memphis air is very humid, and at the time there was a push claiming that the dry air of LA and the Southwest in general would help fight it off. Their plan was to start a business in produce and expand their family. Following their move, Williams was born on February 18, 1894. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before his parents passed away, and both of the children ended up in foster care. His brother was old enough that they were able to stay in contact as he took the initiative to write. Williams was lucky enough to be adopted by the Clarkson family were family friends of his parents before that. They encouraged him endlessly and undoubtedly helped with encouraging him to continue his education when he was running into social barriers. His brother would stay in his life until he passed away in his 20s according to the documentary. He actually met his wife through his brother as she had apparently dated him at one point. His wife Della Mae Givens and Williams married on July 27, 1917 and had two surviving daughters. All the photos with him and his family 
really showed how important family was to him. And NPR.org suggests that this might be one of the reasons that he wanted to design home. For whatever the reason, he truly trailblazed his own path, even in his education. Among the schools he attended were the Los Angeles School of Art and Design and the Bue Arts Institute of Design, the LA branch. He also studied at the University of Southern California, and he kept running into what savingplaces.org quoted him as saying, quote, the blank wall of discouragement, end quote. He would have professors and teachers tell him to give up, that it would be impossible for him to become an architect due to the color of his skin, but he continued to press forward. The documentary covered the most interesting part of his education. As many of our architects know, you have to be licensed to practice as an official architect. And for those of us like me now, we are currently taking or studying for licensure exams while getting practical experience in a firm. At the time, it was extremely hard for him to get an internship, so he adapted. While he would eventually work under another architect, he really taught himself. He used all of the methods available to learn and to get experience when most tend to just focus on one method. He was part of the Los Angeles City Planning Commission, and this led to him becoming certified as an architect a year later. He began to work for Wilbur Cook, gaining experience as a landscape architect and urban planner. Additionally, he was later mentored by Reginald Johnson, another architect. But it wasn't enough to get his name out there yet, or at least not enough to really kick off his career. So he started to submit his work to competitions, as it was judged without the judges ever meeting the contestants face to face. And more importantly, he started winning creating a name for himself of high-quality, well-crafted design. Through this, he was able to open his own practice in 1923, according to the Paul R. Williams collection. He actually designed across all styles, and I can't stress enough how incredibly adaptable he was to various styles of design. There were several reoccurring elements that always would make the project a true Paul Williams project, but he was amazingly capable of changing styles, from Georgian to Mediterranean to modern modern, he was able to adapt to it all with the designs that had the client in mind. He was known for his attention to detail and his breathtaking staircases. He used windows to define the space and create ornamentation that would take your breath away. And while a large portion of his work was residential, he also crossed into government buildings, civic, commercial, institutional, and even worked on LAX, the Los Angeles International Airport, which is another example of how he would work the system in his favor. He knew he didn't have enough staff to compete with a larger firm. Unlike today, when you head over into our computers to make your drawing, it took them significantly longer. So the documentary mentioned how he decided to approach his submission and involvement as him wanting to advocate for the users or the everyday people who come in and out of the business. Those in design use the phrase users to indicate those who use the space. These are the passengers, workers, anyone who step foot in or on the ground. And it worked, and they were included on the project. But there was another problem, the clients themselves. The clients, which were predominantly white Protestant men, would enter the firm not knowing who he was, but knowing he was good, and would be surprised to see him sitting behind the desk. Some would refuse to sit next to him or try to leave. This didn't stop him though. He taught himself to draw upside down so the clients wouldn't have to sit next to him. This talent would serve him well, and had the added advantage of making the clients feel 
feel more involved in the process. To stop them from leaving, he would try and catch them off guard by asking how big of a project or what their budget was, then immediately telling them that he made it a practice not to accept that small of a project, or projects less than a much higher dollar amount securing himself both a higher commission and creating his reputation as an exclusive designer before his career took off. He was an amazing draftsman and superb designer. Just to be clear, he just was also an incredible businessman. Over the 50 years he worked, he worked on some amazing projects, including designing homes for the stars, such as Frank Sinatra, Lon Chaney, aka The Man of a Thousand Faces, and Lucille Bald and Desi Arnaz. He also designed the MCA building, which is now the Paradigm Talent Agency. He worked for the Navy during World War II and designed a monorail and so much more. But while he designed so many private homes, he also worked on public projects, affordable housing, and several buildings like that, including the first building of one of the most well-known research hospitals, St. Jude. And I want to really take a moment to discuss his work on St. Jude. The hospital was built in Memphis, Tennessee, and his time was completely donated. Williams was friends with the founder, Danny Thomas, who had the idea of a hospital that was completely integrated, and all the children would be treated and seen as equals, and no child would be turned away from receiving help, and no child would be rejected from being treated for being unable to pay. When Thomas and Williams spoke about the project, Williams donated the drawings for the first phase, with the provision that Thomas told no one else. Unfortunately, the original design no longer stands, though Williams was honored when it first opened. It was taken over by an expansion which doubled the size of the facility. Of course, it's wonderful that the hospital was able to increase the scope of its work and provide care to more children with the expansion, something Williams, as a member of its board, would have been proud to see what it became. I read a story on one of the sites about how Williams had actually independently of Thomas come to the idea of designing the facility in the shape of a star. As many of you know, that's a really important symbol for St. Jude's hospitals today, but it was just a happy accident. While that was a central element in Williams' design, after the expansion, only one arm of Williams' original design is still existing in some capacity. The others were encompassed into this new expansion completely. So the entire building is not gone, it's just more like 90%. If you are interested in learning more about St. Jude's efforts today. That link will also be in the show notes. Another project you have undoubtedly heard of was the Beverly Hills Hotel. While the hotel was built previously, it started to really struggle during the Great Depression. He was hired to bring it back to life during a time that he wasn't allowed to stay the night, and he succeeded in turning the hotel into what it is today. The hotel's iconic sign is actually his handwriting, and the building stands today with much of the original design still there, including the infamous room named after him. Another project is in the Rocky movies and was used in several other movies whenever they needed an English house. He finally retired in 1973, and he enjoyed several years with his family before he passed away at 85 on January 23, 1980. And this funeral was packed with all those whose lives he had touched. Now, there's a bit of a gap in our knowledge of exactly who and when he worked with people. At the end of his career, he had reached an estimated total of 3,000 buildings that he had designed, not only in America, but across the globe. He was a member of the AIA in 1923 and inducted as a Fellows in 1957 and was again the first African American to join both. He also won the Merit Award 
from them in 1939 and was awarded the gold medal for the AIA in 2017, an award that his granddaughter accepted for him as it was given to him a good 30-something years after his death. This award is the highest honor any architect can receive in the AIA, and he was again a historical first to achieve it. He also wrote two books and several articles. Eight of his buildings have officially been added to the National Register of Historic Places, and efforts are actively underway to save more. The Paul R. Williams Scholarship and Education Fund was created just last year to support those who are interested in becoming architects and will launch its first round of scholarships out soon from the time this episode is released. After his death, his family had kept his papers in his bank, a company he founded called Broadway Federal Savings and Loans. In addition to serving and providing loans to members of the community, such as minorities that were previously unable to, this bank also agreed to finance risky projects, such as the infamous Stall House. Unfortunately, the bank had been the victim of the 1992 riots after the Rodney King trial. The bank burned, and with it went part of his office records. However, we still have many of his drawings. They had been removed by Karen Hudson, his granddaughter, as she was working on a book detailing his life. By pure happenstance, she managed to save many of his drawings as she had them at home to document his work in her books. Thanks to her efforts and others in their family, his legacy has continued to spread and encourage others to break past the barriers and further design. The Paul R. Williams Collection is a catalog of his work, and I will include a link in the show notes. This site has a mixture of information, including a selection of his work in a gallery, a scholarship, and additional information I didn't have time to cover today. He had a lasting influence on design including several of his design elements becoming staples of the design field, such as retractable screens, patios as additions, ornate staircases, and the particular use of curves. According to UCL's website, he gave back to the community and sat on the board for several community organizations and truly turned LA into the skyline you see today. Unfortunately, with each passing day, more and more of his incredible works are being demolished and the land redeveloped. Ongoing efforts and partnerships have sprung up to help preserve his work and inspire the next generation of architects. If you want to learn more about him, check out the Paul R. Williams Project or search for his granddaughter's books released under her own name, Karen Hudson. And thank you once again for joining me on this first installation of Heritage Months. I look forward to continuing this next month and learning more about those who paved the way in design. Just remember, later this week, we will have another episode on the oldest park in the world, so please keep an eye out for that. The weather hasn't been cooperating up here, so if you hear the sound of snow falling in the background or the shrieks of kids playing outside, it is because it is officially a snow day. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts from. You can find me on Instagram at architecturecoffeeanding, email the show at architecturecoffeeandink at gmail.com, or the blog at architecturecoffeeandink.com. Architecture Coffee and Ink is a Hollywood C Studios LLC production. I'm excited to meet with all my designers, dreamers, and DIY enthusiasts next time. But in the meantime, may your coffee mugs be full and your inkwells never run dry. <laughs>